I am Lemuel Gonzalez, repentant sinner, and along with Amity Armstrong, your heavenly host, I invite you to find a place in the pew for today's painless Sunday school lesson, Without Works. We are returning from hiatus with another episode fighting the conservative takeover of Christianity. For our first episode of the new year, we will spend a little time discussing a positive step for our country in cannon fodder, and Lemuel will visit an interest he's had since childhood and discuss dinosaurs and how they fit into the fundamentalist narrative in The More You Know. First up, cannon fodder. Twenty twenty one has already been quite a year. Within the first week, the sitting president of the United States fanned the flames of a coup attempt, aided by the Capitol Police that led to the flying of the Confederate flag within the halls of Congress for the first time ever, and the death of at least five individuals. That's not what we're speaking on today, other than to say that this was a violent coup attempt and that those who perpetrated it are traitors to the United States. We will undoubtedly speak more on the subject with the distance of time. We want to talk of happier things today, and so I offer the name Stacey Abrams, pen name Selena Montgomery, for canonization today. I was unaware that she was anything other than Stacey Abrams. Yes. So let's start with her HarperCollins author page. Okay. Selena Montgomery grew up in Mississippi and Georgia with two incredible parents and five fascinating siblings. She's a graduate of Spelman College, the LBJ School of Public Affairs, and Yale Law School. She draws upon her interest in in, and experiences with social and economic policy, politics, and creative writing to fuel her novels. As her alter ego, Stacey Abrams, she served 11 years in the Georgia House of Representatives. In 2018, she became the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia and is the first black woman and first Georgian to deliver a response to the State of the Union. Let's start with what we don't want to do. There has been an enchanting of Ms. Abrams on Twitter and other platforms, a deeply problematic, magical Negroism of her and her work. I'm sure I will maybe trip into this with my fangirling, but I want to be clear that I'm aware it's an issue and I'm going to do my best to sidestep it. And we're linking, linking a Slate article directly speaking to this issue in our show notes. In 2018, after witnessing the gross mismanagement of the Georgia gubernatorial election by the Secretary of State's office, led at the time, it must be noted, by her rival for the position and now governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, Abrams lost, launched Fair Fight to ensure every American has a voice in our election system through programs such as Fair Fight 2020, an initiative to fund and train voter protection teams in 20 battleground states. Over the course of her career, Abrams has founded multiple organizations devoted specifically to voting rights, as well as to training and hiring young people of color and tackling social issues at both state and national levels. In 2019, she launched Fair Count to ensure accuracy in the 2020 census, and greater participation in civic engagement. And the Southern Economic Advancement Project, a public policy initiative to broaden economic power and build equity in the South. 
It isn't overstating that she was robbed of the governorship in 2018. But rather than taking her experience and her ball and going home or going off to write more novels that are number one bestsellers, uh, she took what she knew and what she had learned and she funneled it back into the state of Georgia, decried for years as too red to ever flip to the Democrats. She saw the gap between the potential voters and their votes. There were pl plenty of people in the state who would vote blue if they could, and they, and they were reached out to. So she reached out, and for the first time since 1992, when Bill Clinton got Georgia's electoral votes with just one million uh, popular votes, in 2020, Joe Biden took the state with nearly 2.5 million votes. Then she continued her work and flipped both Senate seats this week, thus flipping the Senate to Democratic control by the narrowest of narrow margins. She isn't magical. She can't do everything. She shouldn't be deployed to solve all of our problems. And certainly, as a black woman, she shouldn't be deployed to solve all the problems the white folks have done made. Uh, but what she should be is admired and lauded for being the cool, together, knowledgeable, and hardworking woman that she is. Stacey Abrams. Yay. I find it an interesting um, comparison. Because when Donald Trump lost the election mm -hmm. and lost it, uh, actually He's lost the election. Actually lost the election. Legitimately uh, lost the election, we should say. He is complaining and whining and mm -hmm. trying to foment a rebellion mm -hmm. against the legitimate powers that mm -hmm. be. When she lost her election through chicanery, is yes. the only way to put it. <laughs> Correct. Um, she then turns that into a very powerful platform for starting a social change. Yes. And she does it in her home state. She's not trying to elevate herself into a higher political position. She goes back to where her roots are, well, and she fixes it there. Yes, but she's also, like I said, these are national initiatives, so there are 20 mm -hmm. states that got fair fight right. attention. Uh, the, the attention, of course, is on Georgia, because Georgia worked right uh worked spectacularly and it's yeah it's the place that really well she saw the injustice there yes and she knew she she took the uh the evils that she was familiar with and she was able to change yep. it That's she amazing. looked at all those voice, voices that weren't being heard and she found mm -hmm. a way to get them heard right which is pretty spectacular yeah it is considering the change that got made there I, yeah it, it, yeah, it's just amazing. It's amazing the difference in attitude between a person who struggles yes. and overcomes and a person who's entitled to things or believes they are their entire life and gets horribly upset when anything uh, forces them to change their uh, their path. Yeah. I yes. don't know exactly where Donald Trump thinks he's going after the presidency. I jail. Think, uh, well, that's jail. where he is going, but mm -hmm. I don't think he sees it that way. For real. Yeah. It's almost as if he saw this job as a way of... of um, enriching himself? <laughs> not just enriching himself, but making a more impressive resume. Yeah. And that's what it feels like Because how many people can say they've been president? You right. know, not very many. Not very many living anymore. Um, but yeah, congratulations to her. That's actually really... That's uh, a change, making a positive change. Mm -hmm. Making a positive and change. And the world and her place in the world that much more inclusive. 
I'm excited to see what she decides to do next. My guess is that she'll stay in this arena. I think she's definitely going to do that. But I also think she'll stay in the um, voter disenfranchisement arena. Like, people are, yeah, there's jokes that she should be in charge of all of these things. Mm -hmm. But this is what she has focused her large large amounts of her career on. Right. Uh, This is what her knowledge base is. And it's not just Georgia, right? Uh, Florida, most of the South has severe Mm -hmm. voter disenfranchisement through deliberate... of institutionalized racism. Yes, through deliberate means. And deliberate means are what's needed to change it. And that's what she... she, uh, It didn't happen by accident. No, (laughs) no, it was on purpose. And so we need... We need um, light shown mm-hmm. and then on-purpose changes made. And yes. I think that she'll probably continue that. If she doesn't want to do that, though, she could just walk away into the sunset with a typewriter. Yeah, I was completely unaware that she was oh. uh, a novelist. She is, uh, she is a best-selling novel, or she's a best-selling writer under two names. Because uh-huh. she has written books under the name Stacey Abrams as well. Right. So. Yeah. No, she's amazing. She's a very, very cool lady. Uh, She's very impressive. I also like uh, listening to her speak because she takes no guts. Good. (laughs) Which I... Which uh, is part of what I think what we've all learned lately in this political climate is that we just accept the most ridiculous, absurd, and stupid things. Well, some people do. No, what I mean is that all of us in general have not... We've become accustomed to just heinous behavior and this feeling of resignation, it's not going to change as long as these politicians and this political movement is in power. And we have at this point, what, 12 days left? Before we before we can start seeing the changes that we want to see. Um, And that's not to say that the Democratic Party is going Going to to change everything in the right direction. They might be too uh, dilatory. Um, they might excuse people who should not be excused in the in the name of, of healing the country. But what we have to remember is that actions have consequences. The kind of behavior that we saw this week is inexcusable. And yeah. it's good to hear a story of a politician and a political figure uh, using her powers for good, so to speak. Next up, Dinosaurs! I like dinosaurs. I started reading about them when I was young, and as a little boy, they were all that I could read or talk about. I had many dinosaur books in my library, books that were geared towards children and young people because they had the best illustrations. When I was about 11, someone gifted me a book on dinosaurs that was endorsed by the Institute for Creation Research. The book described the wrong-headed thinking of secular scientists who taught evolution as a biological process, on people who deny the literal story of the flood of Noah, and the part that attracted me the most, the idea that dinosaurs might still be with us lurking in American rainforests and African jungles. Are dinosaurs still with us, Lemuel? More on that later. For years, (laughs) for years, the ideas in the book stuck with me. I thought it was my responsibility as a Christian to believe the ideas as pushed forward in this book. Reject evolution as an idea because it represented things in opposition with my faith. After all, 
I'd seen people who believed and supported evolution to be very rude and condescending to people of faith. It wasn't until much later that I reconsidered this. When I discovered that C.S. Lewis believed in evolution, and after some initial resistance, many Christian churches, the Catholic Church especially, allowed for people to believe as they please, as long as it doesn't become a philosophy that excludes ideas like the immortal soul. Eventually, reading other ideas by religious writers, I realized that evolution was far less important than I thought. That sounds surprising, but it's true. The origins of man as an organism are less important to me than the origins of man as a spiritual being. I was not interested in questions of biology, but philosophy and religion and metaphysics. I'm including this personal story because this is a topic we'll explore more in future episodes. Modern life is full of things that contradict our loyalties. The kind of religious story taught by the dinosaur book appealed to my interests and was what I wanted to hear. We will approach this narrative the same way that we approach the revisionist stories that we sometimes cover from American history, less mocking than trying to understand the reasoning behind it. This is just my story of the beginning of a journey from literalism and toward a better understanding of my own faith. I am willing to accept there are no more dinosaurs, that a surviving group of dinosaurs may have evolved into birds. This is only disappointing because I honestly do not like birds. They are fluttery and evasive, and very messy. They are, however, edible, and that is all they have, in my opinion, to recommend them. Okay. Before we get into anything else. Yes. Um, what about, what about alligators? They're not dinosaurs. Are you sure? <laughs> they seem that way, but I no. I think they might be dinosaurs. Also sharks. <laughs> <laughs> no, not sharks. I think sharks, sharks are, are dinosaurs. <laughs> I, I. What about a chicken? Book. Is a chicken a dinosaur? A chicken is closer to a dinosaur than than a shark. Vulture. Yes. Vulture is close to a dinosaur. Vulture is close to a dinosaur, and also a bird, which is why they should be avoided at all costs. So we're going to present more in the future about the Institute and other... I was unaware of the fact that there are people who believe that... as a, There's some extremist groups that believe that people of faith shouldn't believe that dinosaurs ever existed. No, like, they think that, like, the bones were put there by Satan... There's some that are that way, our, yeah. I've heard that. I don't mm. know if that's, like, lore or if that's something that no, people that actually believe. No, that was believe. something that people actually did believe at one time. I'm sure there's still people who ascribe to that belief, that they're essentially hoaxes. Uh, one of the articles I read in preparation, that's the reason why we're just doing this as an opening, and there'll be other episodes. Okay, that's good we'll to know, because this episode's yes. going to end up being very short, and yes. I just want to get okay. clear, this is an intro. Right. This new is... year, new topic. <laughs> right. Um, one of the uh, things that I, I, I read in my research uh, was a really well-thought-out and completely well-argued, I should say, piece linking the discovery of dinosaurs to capitalism. Right, yes. And that at the beginning of the Industrial Age, we discovered dinosaurs in England. At the beginning of westward expansion, we discovered dinosaurs in America. When China began opening up as an economic power, they discovered dinosaurs there. So the idea was that dinosaurs are part of a collective myth that uh, accompanies the building or the uh, the building of a nation as an economic power in the world. Now, there is records of 
people in Asia grinding fossil bones into medicinal powders um, and using those to uh, as a curative. In Asia? In Asia. Yeah. In they places, use a lot of bone powders. In places, there are places in Asia, particularly Mongolia, where Roy Chapman Andrews discovered the protoceratops. Well, they didn't discover them. They were just lying around. But the fossils are so exposed because of the elements that you can literally step on them. And so um, the first fossil specimens of the protoceratops, the velociraptor, they're discovered there. And they are, um, and they were known to indigenous peoples, and they were used as medicines. They were often taken to be the bones of very large birds or other kinds of animals. Um, I don't know what the record is. There's supposition that uh, indigenous peoples in this country assumed these were the bones of giants or thunderbirds what, or so creatures like, like that. There could have been. Right. And it could have given birth to those things. Okay. But we don't have any way of saying that for certain. Right now, it's just kind of an unproven idea. Just the, the, the tying it in with capitalism sort of feels like it negates... Of course it does, yeah. yeah. And that's the kind of idea that it's very kind of conservative thinking. When the West discovered the world, the world become, uh, became the world. And at the same time, putting on a kind of mantle of... of how can I put it? That particular article was offensive in lots of ways, but one of them was claiming... Well, dinosaurs are a myth created by industrial cultures. Yes, right. And so it's offensive on several levels because right. it's still claiming as if it's separate from that, right. but ascribing a complete fallacy right. that we're, oh, we're just going to make up dinosaurs and deliberately misidentify things because that's the mark of a rising culture. Gotcha. Okay. And I was that's what I want to point out when mm. the church declares the right. West as oh, no, that wasn't, that the, was, the yeah, end-all be-all. I'm not even sure that was the church because that opinion was couched outside of religious terms. Uh, an organization like the uh, Creation uh, Institute for Research, right? Do you want to say anything else about that since you yeah. mentioned it very briefly at the beginning? Um, and, and they have been around for 40 years. That's not very long. Uh, but my they, whole life, I guess. <laughs> they, I was like, um, since like the sixties, and I'm like, 1980. They were born in 1980. They have a very, uh, a very specific mission. They use, like for instance, that dinosaur book was a book about dinosaurs geared towards people who'd find the subject interesting, but it was mostly a book of evangelism and biblical literalism. What was the target age range you know it was written for it wasn't a picture book it was mostly just ideas about uh how inaccurate radiocarbon dating can be okay and also um the uh the young nature of the universe which is because there's a lot of different ways in which creation science and i'll use that term because that's how they identify themselves okay how it exists, right? Mm -hmm. So the principles of scientific creationism as they lay out, the physical universe of space, time, and matter and energy has not always existed but was supernaturally created by a transcendent personal creator who's, who alone has existed from eternity. And you see, that's I believe that too. Right? Right. Right. So we have these things that we believe in common. Um, 
But uh, the things where we will separate is, for instance, in this, and I'm reading from the ICR uh, tenets of belief, the phenomena of biological life did not develop by natural processes from inanimate systems, but was specifically and supernaturally created by the Creator. Now, this is the kind of thing where Pope Francis, recently himself, uh, a person with a background in science, he has yes. a degree in chemistry, um, said that we're turning God into a magician who waves a wand. You know, an old white man with big right. beard in the and clouds. This is what he's saying. We're trying to. We have to separate from. We can't sort of ignore science as a principle. Um, there's a lot of things. There's that science can't tell us, and there's a lot of things it yeah. will never be able to tell us. True. Well, right. And it can't. There's things that um, that we simply will never have all the data to explore. And it only tells us the, the, the differences telling us what exists in the natural world as opposed to what exists beyond the natural world. And this is where religion and metaphysics and philosophy have, are in their place. Whether or not they should overlap, I don't know. There have been some very... Uh, interesting books and ideas expounded by religious people who are also involved in the sciences who don't seem to have this problem of evolution as a creative process and understanding that this um, the biblical creation as described in the book of Genesis is a creation story very similar to other creation stories that existed before it Correct. that is reinterpreted to mean something new for the people of this faith um, when we're talking about the different kinds of creation uh, science, uh, one of the ideas is that there was a, some of the more extreme views involve a literal six-day creation cycle mm. that took a place over six 24-hour days. How despite was it the fact 24 that, hours before right. there was night and day? <laughs> there was a dark and a light, and despite the fact that the heavenly and astral bodies aren't described until the third day of creation. Somehow there were still 24-hour days. Be 20, there's no such thing as an hour, though. No. Without but a there sun, there's no such thing as an hour. Right. Um, to, to go back to those core principles, again, that they believe, um, one of them is that the first human beings did not evolve from an animal ancestry, but were specifically created in fully human form from the start. Uh, there, one of the things that changed my thinking was a really interesting idea by C.S. Lewis. And again, it fits into the very Anglican idea of, of uh, redemption. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ redeems fallen humanity. Uh, but he extended it even further with an idea that has since then been called in question, which is that... Um, a child developing the womb develops through all sorts of stages of life where it's more comparable to an amphibian, where it's more comparable to a mammal, and then to a primate, and then to a human being, which was a popular idea. I, I can find science books that still, and these are secular science books, that still had that idea. Lewis had this idea that somehow Christ redeems all of fallen humanity because in the womb he transcended through all these steps. In the womb? Yes. So it's, I guess that's convenient or that's, like uh, efficient. <laughs> yeah, but it's the idea that all all of all living things are tied together, and Christ 
living through all these stages in the womb somehow elevates them all. Everything is elevated by the incarnation. And so ideas like that really began to appeal to me. It's like, oh no, I don't have to see it in this very rigid mm -hmm. way. There's a lot of ways of seeing this. And it will, if you'll pardon the use of the word, evolve too. Mm -hmm. um, I'm right now reading some of the writings of a uh, French paleontologist who informed a lot of Catholic opinion uh, because he was also a priest. And we'll be getting into that in the future. And he had a lot of very interesting ideas as this sort of upward point that human beings are ascending to. And he saw the study of evolution as a step in looking at human beings as constantly arriving at a state where they can be perfected. So it's very up there. The, the, the spectrum is really broad for ideas, but the whole notion that we have to deny evolution as an idea or as a process so that we can be Christians is a fallacy. Because it's not, this is at no point is something that we're asked to even take literally. One of the things that was a sticking point in that particular dinosaur book, over half of it was about the flood of Noah, which again was an idea that, um, that as intriguing as it is, that I, I'm not expecting to be a literal truth. I mean, we know that there was a great flood. Whether or not a man built a boat and put a bunch of animals on it and sailed around, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> My issue isn't even the boat. It's how flooded it happened. <laughs> it got, seems, I've been in a lot of rain and then it never washed everything away. Well, that's kind of, uh, there's degrees of that too. The book itself described how My some, issue isn't right. not the boat, right. but also... <laughs> right, well, but there's evidence that, the, that there was an enormous cataclysmic flood that covered most of the area of the world. Yeah, there's evidence now, right. here. Yeah. Uh, in this hemisphere, that there was yes. a flood at one point that right. was real, real bad. <laughs> and so there's um, there's a, a lot of thinking about that, too, that you have to support this idea. And I remember... Maybe their days weren't 24 hours either. When I was a kid, um, and uh, for some reason, evangelical television was on a lot in our house growing up, that Pat Robertson, that guy, was trying to mount an expedition because somebody came back with pictures of the remains of a giant boat discovered in the mountains of Turkey. And he was convinced that this might actually be the Ark of Noah. Did he try and put some elephants on it and see if they fit? Well, no. It was just these photographs. It was very impressive. I mean, it probably... I don't know what it was at one point, but that was there was a whole... Uh, you don't think it was a big boat? It was. It looked like the shape of a boat. Um, there was a documentary uh, that got theatrical release. That's how popular this idea was in the seventies. Um, is this alongside like the Shroud of Turin? Yes. Yeah. And this was a holy artifact, and they uh, they demonstrate how it all could happen, and talk to some scientists who are convinced that you really can pack all the animals on Earth into a boat four hundred feet long. And Steven Spielberg rolled this wave of religious artifact stuff in right into Raiders of the Lost Ark. Whoosh. Yes. <laughs> but uh but yeah, that was an idea and people were very much on uh, 
uh, of the opinion that we should go into the mountains of Turkey and go looking for this boat. But um, yeah, I, to the, that was years and years and years ago. To this day, I have not heard of anybody actually finding the boat or the remains of any animals. So. Secret. Okay. I would think there would no, be no animals on the boat, because the boat well, was would, so that the animals didn't die. Well, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't the, find the remains. Animals that you're finding flooded, um, or animals that we're finding the remains of the fossils, are actually animals buried by the flood. Okay, but they wouldn't, the, they wouldn't be around the, they wouldn't be around the boat, because the boat didn't just stay in one place. No, the boat didn't drift it all over, but I mean where it landed. Yeah. Um, Ararat? Ararat, Mount Ararat. Ararat. That's uh, hard to say if you have a speech impediment like me. But yeah, there was a Jack T. Chick comic that covered um, his kind of like secret agent characters that he developed that when he was trying to popularize his opinions, go to Turkey and discover a communist plot to hide the Ark of Noah because it's going to prove that uh, communism itself is a false idea. So they're deliberately hiding it from you. Got it. So we will be revisiting. Oh yes, we will. Creation science. We're going to revisit a phrase that I have a lot of difficulty putting into, uh, like, like saying out loud. <laughs> yeah, I don't. What is your experience of it? Of what? Of of that kind of thinking. Of the... I grew up in California. I, I I think that that's nonsense, and I think that the fact that it's allowed to be taught in right, schools so is upsetting. I had this really interesting experience with one of our coworkers when we worked at a bookstore a long time ago. And she really sort of had an issue with anything that smacked of religion. Um, and so one of the things that I had to deal with in speaking to her was the notion that she she was scoffing at the notion of intelligent design. I don't... And that that was one of the... It's like, well, you believe that. And it's like she kept lumping it along with creation science. Mm. No, they're different things. A huge wide spectrum of ideas. Yeah. I mean, um, sometimes intelligent design seems good, and then sometimes uh, Kirk Cameron tries to prove it with a banana, and I'm like, nope, it's nothing. I, what is a banana? Well, we'll I'll show you, and then we'll talk about it. It's it's not a thing to go into cold. Right. <laughs> I, I just I um, one of the more interesting paleontological discoveries was done a number of years ago with the discovery of a Tyrannosaurus Rex that uh, one scientist on this team had uh, experience with, uh, let's see, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to call this up, but I'm going to do this. Uh, right, okay, so this is in uh, 2000. Uh, Bob Harmon, the chief preparator of, of paleontology at the Museum of the Rockies, found a Tyrannosaurus skeleton in Hell Creek in Montana, uh-huh. which is really famous for a lot of fossils. Yeah. Jack Horner, who's probably most famous for uh, holding really rigid views about dinosaurs, but who also was a techni- technical consultant for Jurassic Park. He led this expedition. He gave a femur bone of this tyrannosaurus that was discovered to a scientist named Mary Higby Schweitzer. And she investigated it. She had a a background in um, medical science. 
and she was able to discover that there were act there was um she was able to retrieve proteins from this femur and this is in 2007 she was able she knew what to look for and she did these tests on it discovered that there were active proteins um and that there were soft tissues in it now this is ironic the guy with the consultant to Jurassic Park is handing mm. over this bone and they find uh you know amino acid sequencing um and how it's related to other bird-like animals. Right. This woman actually proves the theory of evolution by showing a link between dinosaurs and birds. Oh, interesting. She's a born-again Christian. Oops. And you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> right. One of the first things I have somewhere in my le- in my um, collection, a Discover magazine where there's arguments with people. First of all, from uh, a creation science background, claiming that she had no right to do this because she's betraying her beliefs. And then opinions from the opposite side that said that her her um, findings should be put into question because she obviously has some sort of motivation for introducing her religion into the scientific arena. So, and the fact that she's a woman just sort of made it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, worse. Mm-hmm. I have to remember to do that. Made it worse. So there was a, a fighting over what her results were. And I've always thought that she was very brave for coming out and doing this. And Jack Horner, for a while, kind of made himself the face of this particular find. Uh, because it was less controversial to have him say things than to have this religious person mm-hmm. made this enormous scientific discovery. But mm-hmm. I'm really glad that in the years since then, um, even though she's there's been a lot of questioning of the... Uh, of her results, they've been validated, and she's gone to win several honors for it. Uh, the discovery of these, uh, or discovering, or opening up a whole new era, or a whole new field of research. Now, people are now actively researching these dinosaur bones, finding the fat, or finding the information that we can get from the things that we didn't think. We thought essentially the bone was dead matter. Or we didn't, we didn't, people thought, mm-hmm. scientists for the longest time, and now it's discovered there's so much more that we can get from them, including making an evolutionary link with the dinosaurs. So I found it interesting that she was a threat to both religious people and the scientists because of what she believed that she was not introducing into her research at all. Yeah, no. You are allowed to compartmentalize things. And not just compartmentalize things, because like I mentioned before, um, there are, I mean, most of what we know about mutation and evolution is discovered by a Catholic monk. Right. But nowhere in the research papers that they were writing... Right. Are they saying, this are, is because Jesus did exactly. it? Exactly. Right. That that's all I mean by compartmentalizing. Just because you're writing about one thing doesn't mean you're bringing every, every other thing you've ever believed into that thing right so that's that's all i meant i didn't mean you know you have to like forget that you love jesus to Mm -hmm. look at dinosaurs that's not what i'm saying but i'm saying when you're writing about dinosaurs you could leave jesus in the other room it's it's also saying that what a person believes that everyone who's going to go into a field of science has their own ideas their own beliefs and their own prejudices that they take with them and to say that effectively that her religious beliefs amounted to prejudice 
and we're going to alter her findings is kind of insulting to her as a scientist. Of course. But she was also a woman, so they yes, were going to insult her any huge, possible way. Uh, that, that played a huge part in it, too, is the fact that we're not going to downplay her participation because she now has something that her critics can be find as sort of like a wedge to, yes. to get in to question her findings. But again, they've been validated again, and she's been recognized. But to the extent to where she actually took an idea and made it into a concrete reality, she hasn't been recognized enough. One last question. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite dinosaur? Tyrannosaurus Rex. Do you like that because it's the cliche answer or because it's no, the best answer? absolutely the best possible dinosaur. Tyrannosaurus Rex had binocular vision. Unlike Jurassic Park, where its vision is based on movement, yeah. it actually had similar vision like a bird. It had a very long snout. But you don't like birds. Yes, but <laughs> they have really good vision. I didn't say that they're not messy and disgusting. But... You see, it's actually, and we've done this because I, I took you on the tour that I took a lot of my friends to when I worked in Berkeley and lived there mm-hmm. to go see the Tyrannosaurus mounted at the the. the uh, they also have a Triceratops. That's my favorite. They have a Triceratops skull there, which is you didn't amazing. Ask. <laughs> What's that? That's like I said, you didn't ask, but that's uh, my well, favorite one. I know that it's your favorite. He's so are, fat. Right. Well, also with a giant head. I'm looking at the size <laughs> of that head, and it's solid bone, and that amazes me. How on earth, what held that up? When I'm looking at the Tyrannosaurus, I'm looking at this animal and you know the, the skull that's at, uh, at uh, eye level. There's the full skeleton mounted and there's a skull that's at uh, eye level. And you can see it. And it has, you, you're staring directly into its eyes. It's very well preserved. This is a cast of one, you know, I think. Um, but there's a staircase that winds around it so you can see how beautifully, how elegant it is. And the fact that it's an animal that existed to do one thing and do it perfectly. That's what I love about Tyrannosaurus. It's efficiency. And, um, bite yeah. strength. Bites, <laughs> this remarkable bite strength, the, uh, the construction of its body, the shape of the hips. When you think how much stress those legs were taking when it was moving, it's amazing. Yes, go ahead. You're, I understand. <laughs> nope, I just wanted to check in. Okay. Finally, I'd like to state that Lemuel's opinion of birds represents his own prejudices and it's not the opinion of both hosts of this program. Or this program in general. He speaks for himself. I don't like birds. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you liked it, please subscribe and leave us a review and share it with a friend. We have an internet home without worksPodcast.com. Our show notes and links to stories we talk about can be found there. We're also reachable at withoutworkspod at gmail.com, on Twitter at withoutworkspod, and on Facebook at withoutworkspodcast. All that information is also on the web website, so go there and have a look around. I've been Amity. He's been Lemuel. And we urge you to stay in and do something good. Everybody's got a little light under the sun.